You may be seated. Um, here again is this uh, twofold problem, the problem of the penalty that we uh, are under because of sin, and then the problem of the power of sin. Now, I said when we started last week, um, recognizing that these are very challenging words for, uh, for folks like us uh, to, to hear, uh, it's tough to listen to verses 10 and 11. There is no one righteous, no, not one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks for God. All have turned aside, and etc. I said as we began last week, recognizing that these words are extremely challenging, we need to remember who we are. And I suggested a couple of things, and I suggest this periodically to us, that we, we remember we are two things. We are finite, which means we don't know everything. We don't know everything. There are things we don't know. You don't know, I don't know, and even if we pool everything it is that we know, we still come up short. We don't, we don't know everything. So we're, we're limited in that respect. But the other thing is that we're flawed. We're finite and we're flawed. Um, I've, I know this will come as a great surprise to some of you. I've been wrong. <laughs> and you have too. We've been wrong. And, and I will tell you that, that I really believe what Paul is doing here is what, what he's driving at, his point, as he addresses these Jews pretty largely. I mean, that's his audience in this part of his letter. He's, he's, he's writing to a mixed congregation, Jew and Gentile, but he's really focused on the Jews and, and what he's trying to, what he's trying to drill into them as he dismantles one fortress. I hope this language is beginning to make sense to you. As he dismantles one fortress of self-righteousness after another, as he dismantles through these arguments the fortress of ethnicity, that's in the first part of chapter two through verse 11, as he as he dismantles the fortress of moral conformity, that's in verses 12 and following, as he dismantles the fortress of religious practice, that's in verses 25 and following, as he dismantles these fortresses, he's addressing particularly religious people, Jews. And what he's doing is driving us to the place where we will finally assent to the fact that we've been wrong about ourselves. We've been wrong about ourselves. That our problem is far deeper than we think that it is. Far deeper. And it calls for something far deeper than we think that it does. In the film, The Shawshank Redemption, the character played by Morgan Freeman is serving a life sentence for murder, if you know this film. Now, I, I, it's always, I, I get myself in trouble when I make recommendations, and I'm not, not necessarily recommending this film because there is some raw stuff in it, okay? So I just want to say, if you do watch the film, you, you just have to be careful because it's raw at points. But the character played by Morgan Freeman um, is in prison serving a life sentence for murder. And as the film opens, Red, which is his character name, appears before the parole board. 
And there's an exchange between the parole officer and, and Red. Ellis Boyd Redding, your file says you've served 20 years of a life sentence. Do you feel you've been rehabilitated? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, sir. Rehabilitated? No longer a threat to society. That's the God's honest truth. No longer a threat to society. Then the camera from above the parole officer shows his parole file. And a hand sweeps across that parole file with some sort of a stamp. Cha-ching! And the, the stamp moves away and the word rejected is stamped onto his file. Ten years later, Red appears before the parole officer. Ellis Boyd Redding, your file says you've served 30 years of a life sentence. Do you feel you've been rehabilitated? Oh, yes, sir. Rehabilitated? Yes, sir. No longer a threat to society. That's the God's honest truth. Rehabilitated? Yes, sir. Cha-ching! Rejected. Ten years later, Ellis Boyd Redding appears before the parole officer again. Ellis Boyd Redding, your files say you've served 40 years of a life sentence. Do you feel you've been rehabilitated? Red. Rehabilitated? Well, now let me see. You know, I don't have any idea what that means. Rehabilitated. Well, it means that you're ready to rejoin I know what you think it means, Sonny. To me, it's just a made-up word, a politician's word, so that young fellows like yourself can wear a suit and a tie and have a job. What do you really want to know? Am I sorry for what I did? Well, are you? There's not a day goes by I don't feel regret. Not because you think I should or because I'm in here. I look back on the way I was then, a young, stupid kid who committed that terrible crime, and I want to talk to him. I want to try and talk some sense to him, tell him the way things are, but I can't. That kid is long gone, and this old man is all that's left. I got to live with that. Rehabilitated? It's just a word. So you go stamp your form, Sonny, and stop wasting my time. Cha-ching! Approved. Approved. Now what happened between times two and three with Ellis Boyd Redding? This is just a metaphor. It's just an illustration. It's just a picture. But what happened with Ellis Boyd Redding between times two and three when he appeared before the parole board is what the Bible calls repentance. Repentance. Now, when you hear the word repentance, it's a word that Paul uses in verse 4 of chapter 2. The kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance. The kindness, the forbearance, the mercy of God is intended to lead you to repentance. When you hear the word repentance, 
it probably conjures up all kinds of images in your minds, pictures in your mind, pictures of contrition, pictures of remorse, pictures of sorrow, pictures of embarrassment, the kind of thing that tens of millions of people watched this past Friday morning between 11 and 11.15. A picture like that. Repentance begins to look like that, or we can think that repentance begins to look like that. Remorse, contrition, sorrow, embarrassment, which then leads to resolve and resolution. I'll never, never, never do that again. I'll never do it again. Folks, here here is what Paul wants for us to understand. Paul, the gospel, not Paul, but the gospel communicated to us through the Apostle Paul wants to drive us deeper than remorse and sorrow, deeper than regret and contrition, deeper than resolutions that say, I'll never, ever do that again. The gospel through the Apostle Paul wants to drive us to deeper change, deeper repentance. Repentance in its basic etymological meaning and form simply means a change of mind, a change of mind. And what this passage is intending to do for us is drive us down into a massive and persuasive change of mind about myself. A change of mind about myself. What Paul wants us to understand is that it isn't sins that are a problem. It isn't the fact that we are all sinners that is a problem. What Paul wants us to understand is that sin from the biblical perspective is an imprisoning, enslaving force and power which renders me helpless, completely and destitute. That's what this little word under is intending to convey. Now that is an assault. That is an assault on your pride, isn't it? It's an assault on your dignity, isn't it? It feels like an assault on your person, doesn't it? To say that you are utterly helpless completely imprisoned, entirely powerless. But that's what the word means. And that's what Paul intends to convey. 
by using it. He uses the imagery elsewhere. He uses it in chapter 6. If you'll just flip a page or two ahead, let me read verses 15 through 23 of Romans chapter 6. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. Now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He's contrasting things here, isn't he? He's he's reminding these Romans what life was like for them before they came to the cross, before they came to Jesus Christ. He's reminding them of what that was like. Look at the number of times that he uses in this passage the word slavery. Eight different times he uses the word slave. Folks, here's what I want you to know and understand. More than eight, you got to understand, you are somebody's slave. You are somebody's slave. You serve somebody. Remember Bob Dylan? Bob Dylan, best, I've said this before here, Best Christian rock and roll album ever produced was Slow Train Coming, Bob Dylan. You remember the song, You Gotta Serve Somebody? It may be the devil, it may be the Lord, but you gotta serve somebody. Everybody is a slave and a servant. And what Paul is doing is contrasting what life was like for these people before they came to Christ. Slaves have no freedom. This is the language of the Bible, my friends, my dear friends. This is the language of the Bible. This is the infinite, eternal, personal God who is really there speaking into our world, telling us things to be sure that we don't want to hear, that we don't take seriously enough. I told you last week there's only one person in the universe who takes sin as seriously as it ought to be taken, and that is the infinite, personal God who is really there. And this is God speaking into our world through the Apostle Paul, telling us this is what sin does. It is a slavery. 
It is a bondage. Slaves have no freedom. They have no power to free themselves. They have no hope. They are entirely at the mercy of their masters. Masters that exert an awful and exacting tyranny over them. Eight times he uses the word slave. But then notice this in this passage. Notice the number of times death is used. Notice the number of times death is used. Verse 16, sin leads to death. Verse 21, the end of these things, that is sin. The end of sin is death. Verse 23, the wages of sin, the payment, the the natural consequence and outworking of sin, the natural fruit of sin is death. It's death. This is the Bible's picture of our condition apart from Christ, apart from Jesus. Folks, nobody is free. Nobody. I'm not. You're not. Nobody is free. Everybody's a slave. And Paul is describing our condition apart from Jesus Christ. It isn't pretty. It's horrific. It's utterly, I love this word, discomfiting. Go look it up in your dictionaries. Discomforting. It's utterly discomforting. It's thoroughly humiliating. But that's the picture that is painted for us from the opening chapters of the Scriptures. Genesis chapter 2, God had said, look, and this is a, this is a paraphrase. It's a, it's a rough, loose paraphrase, but this is what the text means in Genesis 2, 17. In the day that you break my law, in the day that you sin, by your sin, you will cut yourself off from me, the source of life. And in that day, you will attach yourself to another master, to another Lord, life is about allegiances. Life is about loyalties. And in the day that you sin, in the day that you break my command, in the day that you break my law, you will cut yourself off from me, the source of life, and you will attach yourself to another Lord. And what is that Lord? Death. In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. You will die. And as you read through the rest of Genesis 3 and and into 4, what do you see? You see the heart-breaking, ravaging effects of sin. You see a husband and wife who had been one another's joy and delight, estranged from one another, the husband accusing the wife, if you hadn't given me this woman, we wouldn't be in this pickle. Estranged. You see brothers estranged. You see one brother committing murder against another brother. You see the man and the woman who had been at home in the universe, at home in the garden, estranged from the garden, now sweating and bleeding and expending enormous energies to extract a livelihood 
from the ground. You see death all across the landscape of God's creation. And when you come to Genesis 5.5, you come to the loudest words the scriptures speak until the gospel of Jesus Christ, until the appearing of Jesus Christ. Genesis 5.5, and Adam lived however many years it was, and he died. And there was nothing he could do about it. He was powerless before. Folks, what did we see on Friday? What did we see on Friday? Let me give you what we saw on Friday. Remember this the book from three or two or three decades ago? Some of you read it. I'm okay, you're okay. Look, I tell you, I want nothing more in all the world than to stand up here and say, I'm okay and you're okay. But I'm not and you're not. Apart from Jesus Christ, we're worse than not okay. What did we see on Friday? We saw the death of a marriage. We saw the death of relationship to children. We saw the death of a career. We saw the death of a man. The whole thing smelled of the tragedy of death. Because of ruthless, relentless rebellion and disobedience. So come back to chapter 3. What Paul does in verses 10 through 12, and I, I don't have time to go into all of the details here. What Paul does in verses 10 through 12 is describe the general condition that we find ourselves in. There is no one righteous, no, not one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. He's quoting from the Old Testament to press this point home to the Jews. If it's true of the Jews, it's going to be true of everybody. That's the point here. He's describing their general condition, unrighteous, turned away from God, worthless. The, the word worthless is reminiscent of the words that are used in Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities, everything is vanity, emptiness of emptinesses, everything is empty. No righteous, no not one. Then in verses 13 and 14 and 15 and 16 and 17, he gives the evidences, if you will. He gives the symptoms of the condition. He gives symptoms all associated with the throat and, and with our tongues and, and our mouths and, and then our feet. So it's, it's things we say and it's the stuff that we do. 
He uses this incredibly graphic image of an open grave. I've seen film footage of the liberation of the Nazi death camps. I don't like to have my throat characterized in that way. But that's the characterization that Paul gives to this. The poison of asps is under their tongues, under their lips. You know, there are interesting things about asps. You can, you can read this in, in dictionaries and stuff. Asps are unique kinds of poisonous snakes. They actually do have these poisonous bags right under their lower lips, right down here. And so that when they bite, they can excrete that poison into the flesh of the victim. But here's the other thing about asps. They live in loamy soil underneath the surface in their dens, and they wait for their victims to walk by. And after they've walked by, when they're not suspecting, the asp leaps out of the den and grabs the victim from behind, completely unsuspecting. about words. Think about how we use words. This is the description that Paul gives us, a general condition, no righteous, no one who seeks after God, no not, not one, throats are open graves, bitterness cursing in their mouths, feet are swift to shed blood. And then he comes back to the general condition in verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. No fear of God, no acknowledgement, no recognition, no humility, no brokenness, no sense of dependence. Now look, if you're saying enough, 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 I've had enough, I get it. Well, that's good. That's good. Because where Paul wants for us to be where Paul wants to take us, where God wants to take us, is to this deep understanding that sin is a dominating, imprisoning power over which I have no control. What was so heartbreaking to me, and again, I don't have time to go into this, but what was so heartbreaking to me as I watched Tiger on Friday, what was so heartbreaking to me was his resolution his resolve. I so pray, I so pray for brokenness, for an expression of utter destitution. But my friends, his marriage at this point, given what he said, I don't know, God does. I can't see his heart, God can. From the words that he spoke, his marriage sounds like another major championship golf tournament. He will work. He will be resolved. And because he is so disciplined and so strong, he will probably do it. He'll probably put it back together and be even farther removed from the kingdom of God and the grace of Jesus Christ. Paul uses language, I'll give you the passages. Paul uses language which describe for us in a number of different metaphors what is necessary if this problem 
of bondage is to be overcome. Our condition requires nothing less than a resurrection, a rebirth, a recreation. Nothing less. I'll give you the passages. Ephesians 2, 1 through 4. You who were dead in your trespasses and sins, God who is rich in mercy made alive. That's a resurrection. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Nicodemus comes to Jesus. Jesus says, Nicodemus, you may be a scholar. You may have a PhD. You may have the pedigree. You may have all the credentials. You can't even see the kingdom of heaven apart from a rebirth. You didn't give birth to yourself in the first place. You can't give birth to yourself in the second place. Nicodemus, what you need is to be born again from above. And that is the Holy Spirit's work. 2 Corinthians 5, 18. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation, a resurrection, a rebirth, a recreation. Folks, this isn't the whole of the gospel, but it is integral to our understanding of the gospel. To understand our condition, our destitution, the depth of our need is the doorway into hope and freedom. I said at the beginning when we received these folks, we come here, we come here as people desperate, needy sinners. We come together to celebrate and give thanks for the fact that God has reached into a prison and has rescued us. Apart from Christ, I am dead. And what is needed is a resurrection, a rebirth, a recreation. So, if you're here this morning and you are a Christian, I hope, I trust that you'll look at this cross behind me and rejoice and praise God and thank him that he has sent someone from outside this world into your world to reach into this prison and rescue you out of this death. I hope praise and thanksgiving will be in your hearts. And if you're not there, if you haven't crossed that line, if you're not on the other side, may I plead with you that you think about these things, that you consider these things. And that you understand the whole reason for the coming of Jesus Christ into the world is to give new life, to raise the dead, to make new creations, to set captives free. That's why he comes. That's why he lives. That's why he dies. And the last thing for you, for myself, for those of us who do have some understanding of this, let me just say to you again, whether you've been a Christian for 20 years or 40 years or 60 years or 20 minutes, the Jesus you needed when you first came to him is the Jesus you need today. Because this problem doesn't go away with one surgical procedure. You get free. The power is broken. But until I breathe my last breath, I need Jesus 
I need Jesus more than a program, more than a sermon, more than worship, more than right ideas in my head, more than experiences, more than moral codes, as good as any and all of those things may be. I need Jesus. Let's pray together.